All right. Good morning, everyone. We'll go ahead and come on in. Our clock uh, up on the wall says 9.28, but both of my electronic devices say 9.30, so I am going to take the time. If there's a two-minute difference, I'm going to make it go in my favor. So we're going to go ahead and get started as 9.30. Welcome into our Sunday school for the tour through the Bible. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll begin looking through the book of Acts. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I ask that as you bring all of us in together from um, joys and failures, from all sorts of different situations and contexts, that you would use your word in many different ways in our hearts. I ask that your spirit would be active and that we would be tender to what your spirit is telling us. I ask that we would see a, a bigger and greater view of Jesus today and that your name would be glorified as we uh, seek to understand the book of Acts. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you know much about me, you know that one of my favorite topics in the world is the church, the local church. It's one of my, there's a few things that I love more. I love devoting my life to being involved in it and loving the members of my local church. And so this morning, as we come into Sunday school, I'm really excited that I get to teach on the book of Acts because of how much Acts has to do with the local church. It highlights the birth, the growth, and the character of the church. And so it has been really exciting for me to study through it, to see what Scripture has to say, and then to come prepared to share with you all what I have seen. Now, Acts is also an important book for us to understand if we desire to live as healthy members of our own church. And it serves as the backdrop for the rest of the New Testament. So if you want to understand the epistles and the last 22 books of the Bible— it's really helpful to understand the book of Acts. So let's dig in. There are several considerations that we'll start with regarding the background of the book, and the background of Acts will take about the first half of our time together, and then we'll conclude with an overview of the outline of the book of Acts, where we'll walk through the content of each chapter. And there's 28 chapters in Acts, and it's a pretty lengthy book, so it's a little bit ambitious to try to go through each chapter, but we're going to do our best. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. But let's begin with the background. Now, our first topic in the background of the book of Acts is the authorship, which J.D. has already mentioned a couple weeks ago when he taught the Gospel of Luke. Acts, like the Gospel of Luke, was written by Luke the doctor. Even though he did not sign his name to either the Gospel of Luke or to the book of Acts, we can confirm his authorship uh, with several different reasons. First, the external witness of the church, the church fathers who wrote soon after uh, the, this book was written, they are in complete agreement that Luke is the author. And then second, the internal witnesses from within the book are actually even stronger and led to that external witness. The book of Acts has a unique feature that crops up as it records the history of the church. Because for the most part, you read through and you are hearing events in the third person. Peter did that. They came up to James and they said, and it's all in the third person. But in specific sections, you hear the voice actually shift from third person to first person, meaning that whoever is speaking, whoever is writing these words was actually there, present for those events. So sections that say they did this becomes we did this, or they came up to him becomes they came up to us, showing that the author was actually there. 
And these first-person sections occur in portions of Paul's journeys as he's going throughout the world, showing that the author was a traveling companion of Paul during those journeys. And if you look at the timeline of all the people that we know who were traveling companions with Paul, the only one who can fit that timeline is Luke. So we can see that Luke is the author. And Paul describes Luke in Colossians 4.4 as the beloved doctor, which actually tells us quite a bit about him. He likely would have joined Paul in his journeys in no small part to care for Paul physically, actually help him as a doctor. Paul endured countless beatings and physical persecution, as well as just other physical suffering, like his thorn in the flesh that he mentions. And Luke could have provided necessary medical care for him. And as he traveled with Paul, he could have also been very useful to, to the physical maladies and other believers that they met as they went from town to town. And we can hear, as Paul describes him as the beloved doctor, that he wasn't just a cold physician with a bad bedside manner, but that he was actually a faithful, active member of the first century church. He was a believer who was serving other believers. Luke was also a Gentile. And as J.D. pointed out, the only Gentile author to author a book of Scripture, the only Gentile that we know of that wrote an entire book, and he wrote two. And this is even more poignant as we consider the content of the Jewish and Gentile relationship in Acts in a moment. So that's the author. We can also find out some details regarding the composition of the book, of how Luke wrote this book, uh, and why it was written, kind of the reason behind it. And we can find that in the opening words of Luke and of Acts. Each of them has an introduction from the author that tells us a little bit about the book. In Luke 1, verses 1 through 4 say, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke tells us that many people specifically eyewitnesses, have worked to make sure that there was a record of the events of the life of Jesus. And Luke, who was not an eyewitness himself, he worked diligently to gather details from those eyewitnesses and to put them together in a clear evangelistic way that pointed to the truth about Jesus. And he wasn't just doing this just to do it, just because he felt like it. He was doing this for the most excellent Theophilus, for a person. Now, Theophilus means lover of God, and it could just be a generic name for any reader who loves God and is reading the book of Luke, but it most likely refers to a specific person actually named Theophilus. Many think that Theophilus was Luke's benefactor, the person who actually funded his medical practice, his journeys, who, who enabled him to buy the materials and go write as he interviewed people to gather these details uh, who, from the eyewitnesses who saw the life of Jesus. And from Luke's introduction, we can see that he is writing so that Theophilus might have certainty of what he has heard from the gospel. So that's the book of Luke. But Acts begins in a similar fashion. In verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through his Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So from this introduction, we can see that Acts was also written to Theophilus, the same recipient as Luke, and that it's not really a disconnected story from Luke. It's actually the second half. 
You can think of Luke as the beginning, the first half of Luke's work, and Acts as the second chapter, the, the, the end and conclusion to the book. A lot of people even consider these as perhaps one work initially. I don't know if we need to go that far, but there's a tight connection between the two of them. And listen again to how he describes Luke. He says it's the first book, and it dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That means that Acts is the second book, which deals with all that Jesus continued to do and teach, now through his body, the church. Acts and Luke are connected. And Acts not only continues Luke's gospel, but it actually intentionally mirrors the storyline, showing that they are very connected. We remember J.D.'s message a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 9, where we discussed Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And from that point forward... Luke moves towards Jerusalem, towards Jesus' crucifixion. And it uses this geographical device to key in on the importance of what was going to happen in Jerusalem with Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection. Then at the end of the gospel in chapter 24, Luke tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit. They were commissioned to take the gospel of the resurrected Christ to those in Jerusalem and then to all nations, calling them to believe and repent. And that's the end of Luke. And that's exactly where Acts begins. While Luke moved the story unflinchingly to Jerusalem, Acts begins in Jerusalem and spreads inexorably out towards the end of the earth. It's a mirror of Luke going to Jerusalem, to the cross, and then Acts moving from the cross out to the ends of the earth. Now, our final note on the composition of Acts concerns when Luke wrote it. As we mentioned, Luke traveled extensively with Paul on his missionary journeys, which would have given him the opportunity to interview all of these eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. He would have talked to the disciples, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He would have talked to many others and people who saw the life of the church begin in Jerusalem and other places. But once Paul was imprisoned in Rome around AD 62, Luke would have had time to compile all of these sources, all of the interviews he had conducted. And during this imprisonment is likely when Luke would have written the books of Luke and of Acts. We're not given any details in Paul's life beyond his imprisonment in Rome, which we believe occurred in AD 62. And so that is the likely date for the book of Acts to be written around AD 62. In all then, Acts describes over 30 years of the life of the church after the resurrection of Jesus. So that is the authorship and the composition. But now let's, let's talk a little bit about Luke's purpose in writing. We know he wrote to Theophilus to give him a, an account of events. But there are some broader purposes that Luke also used to write the, uh, the book of Acts. And we can summarize the purpose simply, in very simple terms, just by saying that Luke wrote the book of Acts to chronicle the growth of the church. He wrote it to chronicle the growth of the church. But there's so many facets in Acts that are slightly different than that, that really say the same thing. So let me give you a couple different ways to phrase the purpose of the book of Acts. You could also say that Luke wrote Acts to chronicle Jesus' work in the world after his ascension. You could say Luke wrote Acts to chronicle the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Or Luke wrote Acts to show the expansion of the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And really, all four of those statements are saying the same thing. 
describing different facets of what God is doing in the world. That he is growing his church and spreading the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth after his resurrection by means of the power of the Spirit. And we'll spend a little bit of time fleshing out some of those different themes, the different aspects in some of those purpose statements. But at a high level, what we want to think of when we think of the purpose of the book of Acts is that it is a record of God working in the church as he spreads the good news of Jesus Christ through the witness of believers. It's not as much a different story than the book of Luke, but it's really a continuation of Luke and continuation of his same purposes. In Luke, we saw Jesus proclaiming the good news of the Messiah, emphasizing that he would suffer, as would all who followed him. And in Acts, we see Jesus proclaiming the good news of the Messiah now through the church, who is the gathered group of those who follow Jesus, even though those people are now suffering as they follow him. Now, Luke records God's work in the church, not for posterity's sake, but to really testify to the legitimacy of the church. As he's chronicling the growth, he's really trying to prove, hey, this is legit. This is real. This is not a rogue religious sect. This is God's chosen people. This is the true followers of the Messiah. Acts shows God working again and again in the church. And the apostles are performing numerous signs and wonders and miracles that could only be from God. There's no way you can read the book of Acts and assume that God is not involved. These are the things that the apostles do are similar to the miracles that Jesus worked to prove his own ministry, showing the connection between them and the one whom they are following. And these signs and wonders are accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, who was promised to the disciples by Jesus himself. And so as Theophilus or others read Acts, they would see with crystal clarity that the church is God's true people. And this would have brought great encouragement to believers who were bearing up under the weight of persecution, or it would have brought conviction to those who doubted the legitimacy of the church. Now, not only does Acts prove the legitimacy of the church, it also proves that God's promises to his people are trustworthy. Acts shows that the gospel has staying power. The message of Jesus was not a 33-year blip that ceased to matter once he ascended up into heaven. The message didn't stay with him. What Jesus preached on earth became real in the life of the church. What Jesus accomplished on earth bears real, life-changing, world-altering fruit in the book of Acts. And this book shows that God's promised plan of salvation is worth trusting. God's faithfulness and steadfast love are proven to his people again and again. Now, it can be easy for us standing 2,000 years after the birth of the church, to kind of take these truths for granted that, yes, of course God is working in his church. Of course, you know, these are the people that he has redeemed. We, we know these things. But in the early days following the ascension of Jesus, the church was anything but a given. It was not something that was established or founded. It was in the process of establishing itself, or I should say of God establishing the church. And so it was not a given. Consider the setting of the incarnation of Jesus. Go about 30 years back before the book of Acts. And just think of the world that Jesus was born into. In a real sense, Jesus was born in Old Testament times. Or you could say in Old Covenant times, which is really the same word. He came to the people of Israel who viewed themselves as God's chosen nation. And rightly so, because they were God's chosen nation. They are God's chosen nation. And that is why Jesus went to them first. He, the true seed of Abraham, the true heir to the throne of David, 
he came to his own to bring the promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants to them. And more than this, Jesus came to initiate the promises of the new covenant to his beloved people Israel, bringing salvation, giving life to dead hearts, filling them with the Spirit. These are the promises of the new covenant that Jesus said, these are for you. But as the Apostle John says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus faced opposition and rejection from the Jews, which led him to bring his good news to the Gentiles as well. And ultimately, this inclusion of the Gentiles, as well as the Jews' utter rejection that Jesus was the Messiah, that these factors led to Jesus' crucifixion at the hand of his own beloved nation. In this context, with this strife between Jews and Gentiles, with this turmoil of who truly is the Messiah— Who truly can receive the Messiah? That is the same context into which the church was born. The church is born in the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And their entrance into the world came with difficulties very similar to what Jesus faced. Just like Jesus, the church brought the message of the gospel first to the Jews. They brought them to God's people who knew his promise. They knew the Old Testament context and they were just waiting for the Messiah. They were prime for the message of the gospel. And thousands of Jews believed. It was not a, a wholehearted rejection, but the beginning of the church in the, in the early chapters of Acts is primarily Jewish because God's people received his message and they believe the message of the new covenant as the heirs of it. But as the book goes on, persecution and opposition arise and that persecution and opposition is almost exclusively from the hands of the Jews. And just as the Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus, they also rejected his followers. Just as they had put Jesus to death, they also put many of his followers to death. And just as Jesus responded to this rejection by bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as well, God also shows the church again and again that God desires to save people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And that means Gentiles as well as Jews. And by the end of Acts, we see that in many places... The church of established people that have believed in God, those churches are actually primarily Gentile in many towns. Acts gives legitimacy to this new group, the church. In the midst of all of this turmoil and this fight for the legitimacy of God's people, Acts shows that God is truly working in his church. They're not a replacement for Israel who rejected their Messiah. Like we said, many of those who believed and established the church are part of Israel themselves. Rather, the church shows the nature of God's plan that had been testified throughout the Old Testament, that the new covenant was for all who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That means Jew and Gentile. God would bring the message of salvation to the world through his people. And you can hear God saying this in Isaiah 49.6, which Paul actually quotes in one of his sermons in Acts 13.47. Isaiah says, well, excuse me, God says to Isaiah, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God says that his servant, which is Jesus, will not only bring Israel back from exile, not only save people from Israel, the real nation, but would also bring his light of life to the nations to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to everyone who would believe. And this is what Acts is all about. 
So that is the authorship written by the, the Luke the doctor. I keep wanting to say the Apostle Luke, and I guess in some senses he's called the Apostle, but he's not in the same category. Luke the doctor is the author. He wrote it as he was compiling information as he traveled with uh, the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it to chronicle the growth of the church and give legitimacy to this new fledgling group. The last aspect of the background that I want to consider is a few major themes in the book. And we mention these themes so that as we walk through the content of the book, and as you read through the content of the book, you can pick up on these themes and say, oh yeah, I remember this. I can't believe how much this is occurring again and again. Each major theme describes one of those aspects of the central purpose of the book, like we hinted at before, that God is spreading his gospel throughout the world. And there are several different facets that we want to explore very briefly. First, the spread of the gospel depends on the sovereignty of God. The church is founded by the same group of disciples whom we see as weak and faltering characters in the gospels. And at every step in the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel, it's clear that it's God who is sovereignly working. The apostles consistently ascribe the acts of the crucifixion to the sovereignty of God, that it occurred according to God's sovereign plan. And Luke describes in Acts 18 that Paul stayed in Corinth because God told him he had many people there whom he desired to save, that that were his own. Acts shows that the spread of the gospel depends on the sovereignty of God at every turn. The second theme is that Acts shows that the spread of the gospel is accomplished through believers, God is totally sovereign in Acts, but he sovereignly works through human proclamation of the gospel. The early believers were driven by their confidence in God's providential hand to preach the gospel to everyone that they met. They didn't view God's sovereignty in salvation as a reason to sit back and let him grow the church. Nor did they believe that they could save people themselves. Rather, driven by God's sovereignty, they boldly proclaimed the gospel to the world, knowing that God would save people. And it's striking to see that over the thousands of conversions that Acts records, there's actually not a single person who is saved without the human proclamation of the gospel. God works to save people through people proclaiming the gospel. Our third theme is that the spread of the gospel is empowered by the Holy Spirit. God is sovereign over salvation, and he saves people through the proclamation of the word. That's his means that he uses. But the one who actually accomplishes and affects that salvation in people's lives by the work of his power is the Holy Spirit, and Acts highlights this. Due to his significant role in the book, many commentators call this book not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who indwells believers and marks them out definitively just as was promised in the new covenant. And at every turn in Acts, you will see the disciples healing power, excuse me, the disciples healing people by the power of the Spirit, praying for guidance from the Spirit, again and again being filled with the Spirit as they preach the gospel. It is all accomplished by the work of the Spirit. He is truly the one accomplishing these things. Now, that good news that the Spirit proclaims through the preaching of the apostles is that the gospel I misstated that. The the good news is the fourth theme. That's what I'm trying to say. The gospel is spread by proclaiming the word of God. What the apostles are preaching, infused and empowered by the work of the Spirit, is that word of God. That is what they are preaching. 
they didn't come up with their own message. They preached scripture. There's 36 clear references to the apostles quoting the Old Testament, as well as many other allusions to other parts of scripture. And nearly 30% of the book of Acts is actually sermons preached by different apostles. And these sermons were preached in large part from the Old Testament. They were expositions of truths from the Bible now understood in how Jesus is what these things were pointing to, that he is the Messiah. And so in Acts, we see that the church preached the word of God, showing that the gospel was God's authoritative message. And the fifth theme goes right along with this, that the gospel that spread centered on Jesus and his resurrection. As they preached the word of God, as they took the good news, they told people about Jesus, and they told people that he was the Messiah and he had been raised from the dead. The apostles repeatedly showed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was crucified, that he died for sinners, that he rose again. They didn't move past these core truths of the gospel, but rather repeated them again and again to everyone that they met. The proclamation of the gospel centers on Jesus and the resurrection, which proves that Jesus was who he says he was, he is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And then finally, the last piece of their proclamation and the final theme I want to highlight is that the gospel that spread demands a response of faith and repentance. The disciples did not merely present truths about God in their evangelistic message. As they shared the good news, they consistently called for faith. They called for repentance. In Acts chapter 2, when the Jews are cut to the heart by what Peter has explained to them about Jesus— They asked the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In Acts 16, Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. These calls for people to repent and believe echo the message that the apostles preach throughout the book of Acts. And to summarize all of these themes, to kind of put them in one sentence of some of the major themes in Acts, we could say, Acts shows that God sovereignly spreads the gospel of the resurrected Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit through the church's proclamation of the word of God, calling on sinners to believe in Jesus and repent of their sins. This is the message of the book of Acts. And that concludes the background material. And so knowing who wrote it and how he wrote it, why and what he's saying at a, a large level, with the rest of our time, I'd like to walk through the outline of the book, beginning in chapter one. Now, Acts begins with the introduction to Theophilus, like we mentioned, that he is writing to Theophilus for these purposes. And then Luke steps right back into the narrative of Jesus, describing his post-resurrection ministry with the disciples in Jerusalem. Jesus used this time to remind them of the imminent coming of the Holy Spirit and the future kingdom that was going to be coming, where he would establish his kingdom. And when the disciples questioned Jesus about when this was going to happen, is it going to happen now? Is this coming? We find him gently redirect their attention to the present. He says, the kingdom will come to Israel, yes, but right now... I need you to focus on something different. I need you to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. 
And just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives marching orders for the apostles, which also serves as the outline for the book that we will use today. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples are to testify to Jesus once the Holy Spirit has come upon them. They are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I have a map that we can show of what this progression would have looked like. And it's going to be small up here, but one of the best things that you can actually do as you read the book of Acts is to use the maps that are in your Bible. The maps that are at the end, the maps that may be in your study notes. Acts relies heavily on geographical sites. And because I don't think any of us are experts on first century Middle Eastern geography, use the tools that your Bible has given you to see this, because it will help you understand the book of Acts. But what Luke is saying is that they are to begin where they are in Jerusalem, which is in that small little box in the top right. They begin where they are in Jerusalem. Then they are to take the gospel out to the country in which Jerusalem is, to Judea, and to Samaria, just to the north. Samaria would have had much more non-Jewish people. This would have been the area that the, the northern ten tribes of Israel had had many years before. And they would have found half-Jews in the Samaritans. They would have found many full-on Gentiles. And so you see they're expanding little by little. But then, once they move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, they are to go to the ends of the earth. And you move from that little box in the top right to everywhere else. They move to, to Asia Minor. They move to Greece, to Italy, to Spain, to beyond. They go through Africa, Europe, and Asia. And we here today in North America are results of this gospel going to the ends of the earth. And even as you follow this on a map, you can see this progression geographically throughout the book of Acts. And this is actually the outline of the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 7, we see a focus on the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. That's the first seven chapters of the book. But then as persecution begins in chapter 8, believers are forced to flee which God sovereignly designed to spread the gospel. And so chapters 8 through 12, instigated by this persecution, these chapters focus on the spread of the gospel in Judea and Samaria, exactly where God told the disciples to go. Finally, chapters 13 through 28 are the final step in this progression as they chronicle the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's the outline of Acts, chapters 1 through 7 in Jerusalem, 8 through 12 in Judea and Samaria, and 13 through 28 to the ends of the earth. Let's get back into chapter 1 now that we have this outline. After the ascension of Jesus, the church closes ranks and works to establish their own leadership structure. Peter speaks a message of scripture to the church, and we see the church submitting to the sovereignty of God as they select Matthias to replace Judas as an apostle. It's Acts chapter 2, though, where things begin to really get exciting. As the roughly 120 believers gather for the Jewish celebration of Pentecost, we see God fulfilling his new covenant promise to indwell believers with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
The filling of the Spirit at Pentecost is one of the most significant events in the history of the church. And the Jews in Jerusalem who were there for the feast from all over the world, they took notice of this event. It was not something that they swept under the rug. It was noticeable. And so with this audience of Jews from all over the world, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached extensively from the Old Testament, proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had died for their sins and had risen again, and that the Holy Spirit had filled these 120 believers according to God's promises. And as a result, we're told in verse 41 that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Think of this number. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and are saved. What a glorious day to mark out the birth of the church. And another thing that you can do to help yourself as you read the book of Acts, not only paying attention to geography, but also pay attention to these little markers about the growth of the church. We're not always told specific numbers, but all throughout, Luke tells us, and the church grew and was strengthened, and it grew, and many came to faith, and you see the church growing and growing and growing. God is accomplishing salvation. Now, in chapter 3, we see the church ministering more in Jerusalem as they were commanded, as Peter and John heal a lame man, then preach the gospel to the crowd that gathered as a result of this miracle. Chapter 4, verse 4, tells us that as a result of this preaching, so many people came to faith that the ranks of the church grew to 5,000 people. Thousands of people are coming to faith as a result of this message. But this growth also brought the attention of of the Jewish leaders, and they threw Peter and John into prison. And so what did Peter and John do? They preached the gospel boldly. And chapter 5 records a unique event in the life of the church. Switching from these significant events that the church is doing and God is growing, chapter 5 shows two members of this church, Ananias and Sapphira, lying about what they have done. And when these two professing believers lie to the body and truly lie to the Holy Spirit, they are struck dead. And this exemplifies a truth that is seen throughout Acts, that holiness is essential in the life of the church. Verse 14 in chapter 5 tells us that as a result of taking holiness seriously, the church grew even more than before. The apostles are again imprisoned by the Jews, but after preaching the gospel, again, they are released. Chapter 6 shows the church dealing with conflict by establishing deacons which shows us another truth, that unity is essential in the life of the church, just as holiness is. At the end of this chapter, and continuing on into chapter 7, we see persecution crop up as the first martyrdom occurs when the Jewish leaders stone Stephen after he preaches the gospel to them. And as the focused ministry of the gospel in Jerusalem comes to a close in chapter 7, chapter 8 shows us that the gospel is on the move. Rather than this persecution shutting down this little religious sect, persecution is actually being used to spread it. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 4, Luke says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And notice where they were scattered, that's not just an arbitrary, oh yeah, and they went over here. Luke says they went to Judea and Samaria. 
We know these places. This is where God has told them to go. And they didn't just go there to hide. They went there to preach the word. Persecution is not harming God's mission. God uses persecution to further it. Everything is going according to plan. Now, Acts chapter 8 is filled with incredible examples of the expansion of the gospel in Judea and Samaria as Philip ministers throughout the area. We see that those who come to faith in Samaria, both half-Jews and even some Gentiles, they are also filled with the Holy Spirit, even as the believers in Jerusalem have been. And this shows that their belief is legitimate. Luke is saying that the gospel has come to Samaritans. Chapter 9 shows how the chief persecutor of the church, Paul, how he comes to faith. And in a stirring vision, Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you notice that Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Which is what Paul was doing. He says, why are you persecuting me? He's showing his deep love and connection with his people. This is not a rogue sect. This is God's people. Jesus identifies with this church. And after his conversion, Paul added to the ministry of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. Luke gives a fitting summary of his time there in chapter eight, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 31. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. God is building his church. Now, chapters 10 and 11 mark a significant progression in the life of the church as God brings Peter to Cornelius, a Gentile. Though it's initially very difficult for Peter to understand, God makes it abundantly clear to him that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. As Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and many other Gentiles in his house, the Holy Spirit once again fell upon those who believed confirming that the gospel had come to the Gentiles as well. And this story seems common to us who are gathered here today as Gentiles. Of course, we have the Spirit. Of course, we're believers. That's how it works. But remember that this would have been earth-shattering to the Jews and to the early church, those who believed. God used miraculous events, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit in indwelling these believers to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the gospel was for all who believed in Jesus. Chapter 12 shows that the church continued to undergo persecution, but that God sovereignly used it for his purposes. He preserved Peter from death and instead put Herod, who had imprisoned Peter, put Herod to death himself. The word of God will not be stopped. And as we come to the end of chapter 12, we see the time of focused ministry in Judea and Samaria, at least highlighted by Luke. We find that come to a close. Because in chapter 13, we see Acts shift from the ministry and leadership of Peter, primarily, to now focusing on the ministry of Paul. Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the Holy Spirit, and they begin what we call their first missionary journey. And again, we have a a map of this. I would really encourage you, as you read these portions of Acts, to look at what the missionary journeys of Paul are, because they are chronicled here. Can we go to the next slide? There it is. So starting in Antioch, which is up north in Syria a little bit, they traveled through the island of Cyprus and then into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
In chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas travel through Galatia. That's what the central portion of Turkey would have been called then, Galatia. And these are many of the churches that he planted that he would have written his epistle of Galatians to in a few years. These chapters, 13 and 14, are filled with sermons from Scripture. They're filled with calls to repent and believe in Jesus. And they're filled with significant persecution. We're told in chapter 14, verse 27, that when they returned, Paul and Barnabas testified all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this was important, that God was saving the Gentiles, because in chapter 15, we encounter one of the most significant divisions in the church. Many Jewish believers have been teaching that Gentile converts must also keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. And this prompted the apostles to gather and determine if this was actually biblical. This was actually part of God's plan. At this gathering, which we call the Jerusalem Council, the apostles agreed that salvation comes through faith alone, and that no one, whether Jew or Gentile, had to keep the law in order to be saved. Paul wrote the epistle of Galatians around this time, and he taught this very same message to the churches that he had just planted. Now, at the end of chapter 15, after the Jerusalem Council, Paul begins his second missionary journey, which we can see on the next map. Usually in our Bibles, there's maps that will have either a couple of these together or they'll be pieced out separately to show the different journeys. And Paul begins this second missionary journey by traveling through many of the churches that he had just planted in Galatia. But then at the beginning of chapter 16, he's redirected by God somewhere else. God sends him to Macedonia and Greece, going further towards the ends of the earth. And it's here in chapter 16 that Luke first joins Paul, describing the events in Philippi with the first person, we, showing that Luke was there in Philippi, which is a city in Macedonia. In chapter 17, Paul shares the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, cities in Macedonia and Greece. And he encounters significant opposition, but he also sees many come to faith. In chapter 18, he comes to Corinth and spent 18 months there. This is likely where he wrote the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica that he had just planted. In chapter 18, verse 22, Paul returns to Antioch, kind of his home base, and he concludes his second missionary journey. But he quickly sets out just a verse later. He probably spent a little bit of time in Antioch, but Luke kind of shows us bang, bang. He came back to Antioch, and then he went right back out. Paul again visits many of the Galatian churches, now on his third missionary journey, He visits many of these churches before coming to Ephesus, a city in Asia Minor. And in Ephesus, he ministered for two years, spending a significant time there. Chapter 19 in Acts describes this period extensively. And Luke tells us in verse 10 that as a result of his ministry in Ephesus, all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the gospel. It was likely during this period in Ephesus that Paul wrote the epistles of Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, strengthening the churches in Rome and in Corinth. Chapter 20 records Paul's departure from Ephesus to minister again in Macedonia and in Greece, in many of the churches that he had planted there, and then records the beginning of his travel back to Jerusalem. This chapter is tinged with sadness, for Paul knew that God was calling him to face persecution when he returned to Jerusalem. 
It's likely that from this point until the end of the book, Luke actually joined Paul at this point. As, again, we see the descriptions switch into the first person, we. And while there's a lot of the sections where he describes what Paul is doing in the third person, probably Luke was with him for this entire point from chapter 20 on, showing him caring for the apostles' physical needs and helping him as this eyewitness to these events. Chapter 21 shows Paul in Jerusalem. (coughs) And here, when Paul returns to the church and sees the other apostles here, he again testifies to to the legitimacy of the conversion of the Gentiles in all of the journeys that he has taken. However, not everyone likes this as the Jews wrongly accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, leading to his arrest. However, as the apostles so often do, Paul used this as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the crowd in chapter 22. And then chapters 23 through 28 describe the long, slow judicial process which Paul endured, remaining imprisoned for years while he pursued an audience with Caesar in Rome. During this time, he appeared before Roman tribunes, Jewish councils, governors Felix and Festus, and King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, preaching the gospel to them all. It's amazing to see how God brings him into these high levels to preach the gospel to powerful people. And finally, in chapter 27, Paul and Luke are sent to Rome. But they first have to endure life-threatening events in a shipwreck and a bite by a poisonous snake. God preserves them through both and uses them as opportunities to further the gospel. If you haven't caught that theme, God uses everything that happens in Acts to further the gospel. Acts ends in chapter 28, where Paul is imprisoned in Rome at his own expense, spending two years chained to a Roman guard while he awaited his trial. And it was during this time that he wrote the epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon to churches and people that he had either met and set up their churches, or that he had heard about and wanted to encourage. And it is here, in chapter, 15, excuse me, chapter 28, that Luke draws to a close. He leaves us with a parting message that is in perfect continuity with the message of the rest of the book. In the last verse, he says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You and I are here today as a result of the book of Acts, the result of the way that God worked graciously through the church. And while we enjoy the benefits of living in a time when the church is established rather than being established, we still see that the Holy Spirit is the only means of accomplishing anything in our own ministry. We must also embrace the message of the apostles and take it to the ends of the earth, proclaiming that our glorious Messiah, Jesus, died for our sins and rose again, providing life to all who believe in him and repent of the gospel. Let us embrace that same ministry today. And that is all. We are dismissed.